Welcome once again to the Irish NFL podcast brought to you in association with Titan Roofing. As always, I'm Mark Cockrell, a, a pensive New England Patriots fan, patiently awaiting the beginning of the new season. And I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, the garrulous Giants fan, Brian O'Leary. Brian, how are you doing this evening? Good evening, Mark. How are you? Well, Brian, we're, we're missing one part of our trifecta in the sense of uh, Gordon Bridgefield is on a promise this evening, so he won't be joining us. But uh, we do have a special guest joining us this evening, all the way from the US, um, Daniel Kelly, who I'll, I'll introduce a little bit more in, in a moment, is um, someone who I think you and I should probably ascribe, uh, aspire to be in so many ways, because... Uh, Whereas we will never make it as professional athletes and but love talking about football and love our American football and have never and will never work for an NFL team uh, unless the Patriots do need a kicker to replace Gostowski. Um, Daniel grew up in the US uh, and I'll let him tell his story in a, in a little bit, but I mean, like, was never going to make it as an athlete himself, but loves his football so much he devoted a hell of a lot of his time, efforts, passions to making it in a very different format. So, uh, Daniel, first of all, welcome. You're very welcome to the pod. Nice to have you on. Thank you, Mark and Brian. So nice to be on the pod here uh, down in Key West, Florida, in the U.S., all the way over to you guys in Ireland, all our listeners listening today. I'm really excited to be on the show. Time to put the ball in the tee and see where this takes us. Uh, I love it. I love it. So, I mean, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, then just – Explain to listeners a little bit about your background and kind of what I was setting up there. I mean, how you found your way in, in the world of football and what kind of an incredible journey uh, you've been on through your life so far. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, it really has been incredible. And much like most of my life, um, uh, the things uh, regarding football have just kind of come into my path, uh, naturally, if you will. Um, I was eight years old growing up in Minnesota in America and, um, it was uh, my parents, uh, I was up, up in Minnesota, my parents were uh, rabid Minnesota Vikings fans, and uh, they had a playoff game on, on an old RCA television in the corner of the living room, and uh, it was against the Washington Redskins, uh, and uh, it was love at first sight, but not for the hometown Vikings, but rather for the Washington Redskins. I was, I was, I was like a magnet to a refrigerator, the way I describe it in my book, whatever it takes, I, uh, I, I just kind of gravitate, I mean... Uh, it was it was everything about the Redskins resonated with every fiber of my body, if that makes sense. Um, I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I mean, the, the colors, the logo, the stands, the stadium, RFK Stadium where they played. Uh, you know, the, the Joe Gibbs, the head coach, uh, the Hogs, yes. uh, Joe Theismann, John Riggins, who became my favorite player of all time. I mean, it was just – it was magical to me. I, I, I just – in two weeks later, uh, the uh, Redskins, of course, played in Super Bowl seventeen. Uh, the game comes down 17 to 13, and against uh, the, the second-year coach Joe Gibbs is squaring off against the legendary Don Shula, and mm -hmm. of course, uh, it's fourth down and one. And most coaches, um, you know, probably would have punted against a legendary coach. And Joe Gibbs turns to his offensive line coach at the time, God rest his soul, Joe Bugle, who recently passed, and he says, "What do you think, Bugles? Uh Fourth and one." Uh, and Bugles turns to Coach Gibbs and says. I like our chances against any safety in the NFL with John Riggins. And uh, <laughs> the play call was 70 chip and uh, the Dolphins, Don McNeil, the safety went for a ride and John Riggins ran 43 yards. I believe the Super Bowl of glory uh, with a chiseled look of raw determination on his face, much like I've lived most of my life. 
uh, if not all of it. And of course, he scored that that touchdown. I was off to the races along with him uh, into the I love it. I love it. So, I mean, I was about to say you were eight, so I didn't want to date you too much, but I was imagining it was the Joe Gibbs, Joe Theismann uh, era. Um, obviously, a great time to support the the Washington team, as we must now call them, I suppose. But, you know, obviously very uh, – I'm sure that's a passionate topic we'll get to in due course. But it, It's hard to get away from the Redskins at times, isn't it? <laughs> How many mistakes are we going to make on that this season? I guarantee it's going to happen a lot. But, I mean, I get that entirely. I mean, I, my, my exposure when I was in college and, you know, I, I remember seeing the game where Bledsoe got injured and Brady came in. I've been a Patriots fan ever since and there's always these moments that spark in you um you know brian remembers uh ya tittle playing for the new new york giants back in 1961 so my my story my story came from 85 86 when i was only seven or eight years of age and predominantly most of the the lads on the road as you know well um also like the chicago bears and the 85 championship game was the chicago bears against the new york giants and the bears won that one the following year the Giants won the Super Bowl against Denver and Pasadena. That's where it all started for me. So we're going back a long time now. We are we are going back a long time. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Dan, it's lovely even hearing you talk there about like you know the legendary Don Shula, which I agree. I mean, Bum Phillips' famous line about him was he could take he could beat you with his, and then he could take yours, and then beat you with the, your own players against you. Effect. Bum Phillips says it's so much better in a Houston draw, or did in a Houston draw, to be honest. But of course, he's up against the legendary coach, Joe Gibbs. Joe Gibbs obviously went on that amazing run with, I remember three different quarterbacks obviously winning um, Super Bowls in that in that famous and storied uh, uh, Washington run of things. But that's you at eight years old. So like every eight-year-old, you probably go out then and you imagine you're uh, Riggins, you imagine your Thiesman, you're playing it in the yard and everything. So, you know, you're a passionate football guy. Why didn't you then become, you know, uh, well, the next Barry Sanders, let's say, you know, what if that was your position? Yeah, no, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be John Riggins. It's funny because my, my grandmother, uh, she always said, her and I bonded through the Washington Redskins all throughout my upbringing. And, uh, you know, she would always give me like football pads and like uh, a little Redskins helmet. And I would go out in the front yard. My parents had a uh, nice size front yard. And, and uh, I actually called because I wanted to simulate the, the actual game. So I called the Minnesota Gophers and I asked them, I was probably, you know, 11, 12 years old at the time. And I asked them, I said, hey, you know, that crowd noise you guys have, and, you know, for, for you know, preparations for noisy stadiums. Could you send me a copy of that cassette tape? So they actually sent me the copy of the cassette tape of the crowd noise. I took my, <laughs> I took my boom box. I ran like this huge, like extension cord out to the front yard, right? This orange extension cord plugged it in. And I had that thing cranked all the way. And I'm sitting down there. I'm like, yellow, dirty, yellow, you know, like Jay Schrader, you know, like under the center and, and the neighbors, you should have seen the site because a picture of this kid running up and down the yard, right? Tripping himself up landing down, you know, bouncing off of trees as tries his way of getting tackled, you know, so, so that was really, you know, I, I wanted to be, you know, a player, but uh, the thing of it is, is I never got big enough really to play, uh, <laughs> even though I could kick a field goal through my parents' uh, two big pine trees. Uh, but the, but the way the season is uh, coming on now, you, they might need that extension, you know, if you soon enough to get the crowd noise into the stadium. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> Good point, Brian. Uh, you know, and, and and I, I, you know, if you guys remember a receiver in the Cleveland Browns called Webster Slaughter, his name was Webster Slaughter. You remember him? No. In fairness, in fairness, Daniel, you're talking about Cleveland Browns and remember in the same sentence. So hey, it's I'm, gonna sorry, be, I'm sorry. Gonna be I'm I'm sorry, no, I, I, good, good point there, Mark. It, but, but no, it, it's, uh, he was a receiver on the Browns. It was really thin. Uh, you know, I, I used to joke around with people, I have the Webster Slaughter Disorder, because uh, no matter how many large pizzas I ate, I never got past about 130 pounds. And uh, I took, you know, I put like all this protein in my, my orange juice every morning. I never gained any weight. Uh, tried, you know, actually playing. I, I kind of dreamt, in quotes, uh, playing linebacker for Penn State. Uh, never had <laughs> it materialize. Uh, my parents finally let me play one year of high school football, and uh, I, I looked the part. I had the big neck roll on. The I had the gloves, the wristbands. I, I did I did it up big time. But I, I kind of looked like Deion Sanders in my own mind, and uh, and so I and my parents let me play, and I, I was so terrible at playing. I, I never even saw the field. Uh, I actually spent my entire junior year in high school at left bench until finally uh, we were down about thirty eight to nothing one game. There was about a minute thirty left in the game. And our high school head coach is, okay, Kelly, you know, it's kind of like a Rudy moment. You know, I said, okay, Kelly, get in the game. You know, so he, I go in there because I don't know the play call. I don't know the plays. I don't know, the, you know, I, I never got a game. So <laughs> he got put somebody else to you know, center field and free safety. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping they're going to run off the clock, right, and just kind of take a knee or something. Wrong. Uh, the, play, the quarterback goes back, play action. And I'm like, oh, boy. And I can see the receiver, the backside receiver digging down against, you know, coming to the post. It's right, run right towards me, and the guy just launches this huge pass, this big pass. It's like NFL films. The ball just kind of spirals up in the air in slow motion, and I'm watching this thing, and I put my hands up in the air to catch it right. It's coming right down on me. It goes right through my hands, bounces off my helmet. It goes on the, on the ground. <laughs> hey, hey, I mean, there, there are plenty of cornerbacks in the NFL who say that's a pass breakup, so that's the way. <laughs> hey, I that no one's ever said that to me before it was a pass breakup i i like that it's a it puts a whole new spin in my high school playing career there you go there you go it's a, it's a success story but look i mean like many many of us i mean you know okay you're not going to make it as an athlete then you then turn to your attention to kind of going well okay i'm not going to make it as an athlete but football's in your blood massive washington fan you decided hey well i want to get involved in scouting coaching whatever especially scouting and i think you you got a great line about you got a book on your 17th birthday, um, which kind of changed your life in that regard. It, it really did, Mark. Um, it was it was called Tony Rosano's Secrets of the NFL Scout, and written by the uh, 49ers scouting director Tony Rosano back in the 49ers dynasty uh, days of the 80s with uh, Bill Walsh. Uh, he was the guy that uh, talked uh, Bill Walsh out of drafting Steve Dills and talked him into drafting some guy named Joe Montana instead. Uh, so he was a very successful scouting director back in the day in the 80s. And, and he wrote this book. And back when I was trying to get into scouting or thinking about it, there was really nothing about scouting back in this day. There was, there was no internet even. Yeah. Uh, it, it, was, it was a day where uh, there was one small yellow book I got every year called the Jerry Jones uh, Drugstore List. Not the Jerry Jones that owns the Dallas Cowboys, <laughs> but actually – but actually, a, a guy that wrote like a little like a little sentence about each player. It was like eighteen dollars for the book. I, I mowed the lawn. My dad bought it for me as, as my allowance, and and I got that book every year. And but there was nothing else out there. So when I got Rosano's book, 
and it talked about all the ins and outs of scouting. It talked about how to write a report. There was sample reports in there. There was full reports in there about Bo Jackson, different reports, Dan Marino he had done through the years, and John Elway. And I'm looking at all this stuff, and strengths, weaknesses, what he looked for in each player. And I, I couldn't put it down. I, 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 was, it was, I was in love with scouting. And I started running around school telling everybody, I want to be an NFL scout. I'm going to be an NFL scout. And the kids are like, sure, right? I mean, my high school yearbook, you know, right? You know, Redskins suck. And by the way, you'll never make it as a scout. You know, that's what they wrote my high school yearbook. <laughs> so it was, you know, but, but that's what I wanted to be. And I read that book over and over and over. I'd get home from school. I'd throw my math assignment in the garbage can. And I would, I would you know, and I would focus on scouting because I, it just resonated with my soul. It resonated with who I was just like back when I was eight years old with the Redskins, the same yeah. thing happened to me with the scouting book. I said, I'm going to be an NFL scout. From that day, I determined I was going to be a scout. Well, I, I love that. And you, you're talking about the same brain trust there, Rizzoli and, and Gibbs, who, as you said, drafted Montana. I mean, sometimes goes unmissed. I mean, Montana was not the first pick like a Peyton Manning or like an Andrew Luck. I mean, he went to the third round, something like 82 or 81 or 82 in that draft and everything. So somebody had to see something in him. And that starts, inevitably, as you say, with, with college scouting, with pro personnel scouting in terms of determining what are those special traits. I mean, I'm a Pats fan. I could talk about somebody who's picked 199 and maybe people not seeing the right attributes, but we, we don't need to go there uh, necessarily. <laughs> You're not talking uh, about Tom Brady now, are you? Mary, Mary, I should have said this <laughs> It, that ship has sailed. It's now down near Key West with uh, Daniel at the moment in Tampa Bay. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely sailed the wrong direction. But, look, I mean, I, as a Patriots fan, so, look, scouting and the scouting managers and what you're saying, there is no internet. There are no books. I mean, Steve Belichick's Football Scouting Methods was published 61 years ago, I think, and is still used by scouts. Belichick has that library of scouting books, which they donated to the Naval Academy, I believe, and stuff like that. But I mean, that's how you learn about scouting. So you've got this one book, which has changed your life. You kind of go, oh, this is how you're a scout. This is how you analyze stuff. Um, but if I fast forward a bit then, so you're at like 17, you've decided this, you want to be this, you're trying to find your way in. Uh, mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, um, you, you kind of, you've, hounded people at various times and you've tried to get your ins and back in your hometown of Minnesota um, uh, where you grew up you ended up with an opportunity with the Vikings and you know again for the casual fans and the listeners of this we're based in Ireland you know we don't walk down the street and run into uh, NFL players or coaches every day of the week you kind of start into a dream list of the, the, the greats of the NFL over the last 20, 30 years that you've actually then had the chance to interact with. So tell us about your interaction with the Vikings and kind of who kind of started you on this path there. And we'll get on to the rest of your journey. But I, I love how it all starts for you, to be honest. Absolutely, Mark. Well, you know, I had done, you know, back, I, I barely passed through high school because I was so focused on scouting and I failed all of a small community college and, and I found myself at a crossroads um, and, and I was working as an insurance agent, um, you know, telemarketing for insurance leads one night and they had this uh, sports radio show on it called KFAN Radio, The Fan in Minneapolis. 
and it said, hey, uh, you know, I was you know, telemarketing for insurance leads and all of a sudden the commercial came out and said, hey, first 32 callers, uh, you know, call in now, you know, you have a chance to come on a mock draft that you can come out to Winter Park with the Minnesota Vikings and be on the radio, bring a friend, we'll provide lunch, call now. Well, I had nine open phone lines, so I started dialing like a madman, right? So I'm dialing, dialing, and it says uh, the person picks up the phone at KFAN radio and says, congratulations, you're the second caller. You're going to represent the Jacksonville Jaguars. This was 1995 when the Jacksonville Jaguars became an expansion team. Uh, you know, bring a friend, come on out. So, so of course, I, you know, called in sick to work, you know, that day when the uh, mock draft was coming on and, um, you know, grabbed all my old scouting reports I had done trying to get in with the Redskins with Charlie Castley back when I was 17, 18 years old, who was the general manager at the time of the Skins, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, went ahead and took all these reports just in case somebody would be there. So picture this. So I walk into Minnesota Vikings headquarters, right, with my, my high school friend. And, um, you know, they have, you know, sit there and wait, you know, in order, all 32 teams, you know, the fans are going to represent each team, you know, on the air. And uh, the uh, sportscaster for KFAN Radio says, you know, he comes back from a commercial break and says, uh, welcome back, KFAN Radio. We're joined. Uh, we're going to go into now the second pick of the draft that coming up here with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And just like the NFL commissioner does it, you know, they got on the microphone and said um, on the mock draft. They said, and with the uh, second pick in the 1995 draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars select, and I stepped into the microphone, and I said, Tony Boselli, offensive tackle, USC. And, and I looked out of my corner of my eye, uh, Mark and Brian, and, and I saw Tony Dungy uh, sitting there, uh, the, 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 then the defensive coordinator of the Minnesota Vikings, and nobody was around him. And so I took all my old scouting reports, and I approached him, because much of life is about taking shots. It's about taking the moments, those opportunities. And, and people ask me all the time, you know, over the years, you know, how can I get into the NFL? I, I get, you know, probably hundreds of people over the last, you know, few years have emailed me and say, what do I have to do? And I say, number one, pay very close attention to the ideas that just come into your mind out of nowhere. And number two, pay very close attention to the people that are put into your path. Well, here's Tony Dungy, right? So I walked up to him and say, hello, uh, Coach Dungy, I'm Dan Kelly. You know, I, I, I brought, you know, these reports. Would you be willing to take a look at them? He says, sure. You know, very humbly. He takes the reports. He starts looking through them. After a few minutes, he goes, you know, this stuff is pretty good. He goes, how would you feel about coming over to my office next Wednesday? And we could sit down, <laughs> right? And we could talk, you know, we could talk. And, and, and we, I could pull all my old reports from the Kansas City Chiefs. And we can compare notes. And how would you like that? I said, I, I would love to do that. He goes, okay, great. I'll be, be over here at you know, 10 o'clock or whatever in the morning. So, so of course, I called in sick again to work the next week, and I went in, and it's funny because I wore my Washington Redskins coaching jacket in the front doors of the Minnesota Vikings facility and to meet with Coach Dungy, and, and uh, my mom says, don't do it. Don't wear your Redskins stuff over to the Vikings. Well, I, I didn't listen. I, I, I'm a slow learner, so I didn't listen. So, anyway, so I walk in with my Redskins jacket. And, 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 you know, I walked up to the front desk. I said, I'm here to meet with Coach Dungy. The receptionist picks up the phone and says, um, uh, Tony, he, uh, there's a young man up here to see you uh, named Dan Kelly. And, um, you know, a minute later, he comes up there and escorts me back to his office. And it, it was an incredible experience. It, it turned out to be a six-month unpaid internship with Coach Dungy when he was under Danny Green um, mm -hmm. as, you know, the head coach at the time of the Vikings. And I uh, learned a lot about life, uh, football, faith, uh, you name it. Uh, he was uh, very gracious, uh, very compassionate. And uh, he gave, would give me scouting assignments. And he also introduced me to one of his uh, best friends, uh, who was Mark Tressman, uh, the old offensive coordinator of the 49ers at the time. And uh, they had gone to school together at the University of Minnesota. 
And uh, so that, that, uh, that was a neat uh, connection as well with him introduced me to Coach Tressman. So who, of course, went on to win a couple of great cups up in Canada with the CFL and, of course, the former head coach of the Chicago Bears as well as an accomplished resume at a lot of the other places too. But, uh, yeah, it was incredible. So, um, of course, Coach Dungey leaves for Tampa Bay. And I go back into the real world, which means I sell sold Kirby vacuum cleaners door to door. Yeah, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one of one of the things that, that strikes me about that that I kind of I kind of love is you you're almost there at the point of so many evolutions in the NFL season. Like you're talking about Denny Green's um, time in the, the Vikings, there just ninety five, ninety six, just before like. You know, Culpepper, Moss, Carter, that famous 98 season they had uh, and that dra- drama they had towards the end of that. Dungy going to the Bucks, developing them as a force but not quite getting over the line, which leads to Gruden going in and obviously Dungy going up. And, yeah, it's fascinating. And, and just in what you're saying as well, like Tony Dungy, you know, has been called many things by Patriots fans, you know, I mean, um, loser being one of them on many, many occasions in games. However, the one thing that does strike me, of course, he did famously win a Super Bowl quite deservedly. He's an amazing coach. But the one thing that comes across loud and clear in everything I think he's done in the NFL and obviously subsequently rehabilitation, helping a Michael Vick and other aspects is, I don't want to say this in a blasé way, but it's almost a, the, he's a good man. Like, I mean, there's in this a sense of goodness emanating from him and kind of taking a chance on a, uh, a random kid in his scouting report and trying to bring him into the realm kind of strikes me in that 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 tone as well. Um, Absolutely, he's a good man. Um, he's a, he's a great coach and even better man. I would I would agree with that. That was a tremendous. When I look back at that, I mean, this is back before Tony Dungy became the Tony Dungy we all know in the Hall of Fame and everything else, and and uh, you know with the Colts and everything else he accomplished. And, and looking back at that, it was just you know even amazes me to this day that he gave me his time and he was so giving of his time and so interested in what I was doing. And uh, he was really, you know, the one that really saw a lot of my scouting reports and by him seeing a lot of my scouting reports really gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. It just built the confidence. I mean, I already knew I, I wanted to do it and I could do it, but actually having someone of that caliber say, you know what, this stuff is pretty good. You're spot on with this stuff at that level. It really, really boosted my confidence even more. So he's he's inherently boosted your confidence. Obviously, again, he's formulating his ideas as a D-back coach and kind of popularized the cover two um, and really made that a, a massive uh, defensive evolution in Tampa Bay then. Um, but, you know, your journey's ended with the Vikings. So you're back to square one. You know, you had a great experience. How then do you pick yourself up and where do you go to next? And I think this is, you know, fascinating as well in terms of the lessons to learn well yeah absolutely mark and brian and to our listeners it was a you know i really you know kind of went from that mountaintop experience if you will with tony dungy into i i kind of uh, fell off a cliff there for a little while because i from that experience um i, I went through one of the hardest times of my entire life i went through a, a personal real time of, of struggle uh my, my first fiance had broken up with me um you know, i was heartbroken um, I, I lost everything. Um, I was I was kicked out of my apartment, evicted from my apartment. My my vehicle was repossessed. I, I was at a different bar every night, uh, trying to find the answers to life at the bottom of a bottle. And um, I I went through a rough time, a really rough time. Um, you know, I look back to the time as just by the grace of God, I got out of it. Uh, you know, as a, I remember one time I had about uh, probably I had a very high metabolism, like I told you guys, but I probably had about nine ten beers. 
And um, I, I went to open up my truck, my SUV, and get behind the wheel. And all of a sudden, I hear a knock at the wheel, and uh, it's a police officer. And, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, come into the car, and, you know, we need to test you and do a breathalyzer. And I, I still, to this day, don't know how I blew under the legal limit, to be honest with you, because I've been drinking all night. And it's just, that's just one example. I, I went through a rough, rough time. Uh, I was sleeping on buddies' couches, um, you know, just really bouncing from job to job. And, and in the back of my mind, I always had this, this dream was always there, this football dream. And so I, I you know, I rebounded, uh, met, a, met a woman, ended up getting married. Her name is Ruth. And, um, you know, I, I talked to a friend who knows a friend, one of those type of things. The next thing you know, I'm working at Bank America, which is one of the biggest banks of, over here in the mm -hmm. States as a uh, loan officer in a mortgage company. I, I you know, I, again, I, I didn't know, even know anything about mortgages when I started there. <laughs> so, you know, I went through the training class and, and um, you know, I look back at that time too as, as being instrumental. And, and I'm sitting there at this, you know, I'm 24 years old, uh, 23, just turned 24. And I'm, I'm sitting in this real estate law meeting and I'm like, you know, what, what am I doing here? You know, my dream is to be an NFL scout. I, 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 it's better to go for it. You know, like Joe Gibbs did back, like we talked about earlier in the show. It's better to go for it and not get it than it is to wonder what could have been. At least that's my perspective. So, so I, you know, all these ideas start coming to my mind. I had one of those little satellite dishes, direct TV. And, and, you know, I said, well, I'll stop at the store, buy some pens and paper. I got to get my dream one last chance. So I called, subscribed to the college football uh, package on, on direct TV. Uh, and um, I just started recording games. And at the same time, I was working full-time as a loan officer at the bank. Well, this went on for seven months and, and I, I worked, you know, all day at the bank and I come home, you know, maybe getting probably, you know, hour, two hours, maybe three hours at the most sleep a, a night. Uh, you know, I'd be working on these scouting reports late into the evening. And before he knew it, the scouting reports were piling up. I used, you know, the scouting template that Tony Rosano kind of taught me in this book to use. And I, I just, you know, I started having all these reports. And then one night I took a break about two o'clock in the morning. I was living in this old rundown duplex in Northeast Minneapolis. And they get some pizza rolls, right? There's, there's, so they, I microwave some pizza rolls. And there's a special on, on ESPN about this worldwide receiver named Wayne Corbett. You guys remember him at all? The, the little receiver yeah. from Hofstra? Yeah. Right, right. So, so and it's talking about how his, you know, he's undrafted, how his dad tried to help his son land an opportunity in the NFL. And, and he sent out his highlight tape to all the teams. And I'm like, you know, it's like a light bulb moment for me. It's like, that's it. I've never tried to get in with any other team in the NFL besides really besides the Redskins with Charlie Castley as the general manager. So I said, I'm going to, I made the determination right then and there at three o'clock in the morning, two, three o'clock in the morning, my, my, my duplex, that I'm going to send out my work to all the teams in the NFL by hearing this, this story about Wayne Corbett. And, um, you know, the first thought I had was, well, you know, I'm going to go send in three ring binders. Well, no, I thought that won't work because probably teams will take the reports, all the binders, throw it away. And, you know, use the binders for something else. And so I go to the bank the next day, again, you know, talking about instrumental or steps are in life. I go to the bank the next day and my, my friend at the bank, I tell him this idea that I'm, you know, describing with you and all, all of your listeners. And, and he says, why don't you get your work, you know, self-published in like a book form? I'm like, well, how do you do that? He said, well, start calling some publishers. So I start, I, I got out the yellow pages and started calling publishers. And one guy, one publisher in Minneapolis liked the idea. He said, come on in. He sat down with me and said, listen, I love what you're trying to do. It's going to cost about $2,300, okay, which is all the money I have plus my next two paychecks. It's going to take 85,000 sheets of paper because my book was probably going to be around 350 pages long. And it was going to be called the 1998 NFL Draft Report. 
And, and he said, uh, you know, we'll do it for you. I, I love what you're trying to do. Great. So I continued working on the reports. And one thing I did, uh, Mark and Brian, is, is I, I included all my handwritten notes in the book next to my each, each, each scouting report because I did not want any teams in the NFL that I sent my book to to think that I copied, you know, anybody else, like any of those publications out there, right? Or Mel Kuyper or any of these people, right? So I went ahead and, 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 and I had a tight deadline and I got done by April 1st, two weeks before the NFL draft. I was absolutely exhausted. I used up all my vacation time. I was drinking coffee, uh, you know, energy drinks, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, anything that possible. I fell asleep on my lunch break at work. I mean, I was exhausted. But I fought through the exhaustion because my dream was on the line. And so we got this book done by April 1st. It was packaged up. I don't know if you guys, um, let me show this to you really quickly. Uh, it was packaged up in boxes. And... Um, let me see about the boxes here. You guys can see this here. Audience can see this too. The boxes right here. If you can see that, all the boxes um, in the book. Yeah. That, that that was that was my scouting reports. It was it was a huge big thing. I put in my SUV and uh, spent another thirteen hundred dollars on a credit uh, you know on credits to send out my book overnight mail. I personalized one book to again three hundred fifty page resume. No guarantees. I personalized one book for every head coach. Director of player personnel and head, you know, and and yeah. uh, GM uh, in the league and set it out, you know, northeast, south, and west, and with no no guarantees at all. So that that's kind of how the, the whole book came about. Sent it out and just really sat back and waited to see who would respond. So this is this is how the universe works, though, isn't it? So you've invested everything. What you put out into the universe, you should get back. So you've put it out there to 32 NFL teams, as you say, to the three key decision makers in those organizations, and you know, sometimes you end up in heaven, sometimes you end up in hell. And the Meadowlands, Brian, I mean, that's heaven, isn't it? Well, it is for me. It wouldn't be for the Jets. They were just, that's the second home, really, isn't it, for them? The baby brother, so, he, he was in the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I mean, like, I mean, I've got to get a bit of a jab in there because, like, you know, you ended up uh, ultimately then working with the Jets and, you know, I, again, I mean, taking into our world, I love you talking about the undrafted wide receiver. You're like the undrafted scout trying to get your opportunity. And, you know, we can all find those players in our teams. Victor Cruz with the Giants, Wes Welker on the Patriots and stuff, those little gems or Danny Woodhead, who the Jets famously got rid of. But I won't hold that against you guys. Um, uh, I, th I, Daniel, think it's I think it's point you'll discuss the Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells. Exactly, yeah, only, yeah. only recently uh, <laughs> we would watch the ESPN program where the two of them got back together and discussed their uh, time together with the Giants in 86 and 90, then leading on to the New England and then into the Jets. It was a, it's a great story between the two of them and how they both it one another over the years. Not that was good, hostile at times, but I think should, the program showed the respect they have for one another. Yeah, and, and you had a front row seat or a kind of a medium row seat for some of that, Daniel, if you want to tell us a bit about your time there in the Jets then, uh, from this activity that you put out there to try to get your opportunity. Yeah, it was incredible because the first team to call me, all my buddies at the bank were waiting to see what would happen along with me. And uh, the first team to call me was the New Orleans Saints. I, I really thought I was going to the Saints. Uh, they called me, uh, the college scouting director at the time, Bruce Lerman, called me and said, Mike Ditka really likes your book. Uh, you know, we got a position open for the uh, Midwest, which is the mid part of the United States uh, for a college scouting position. Um, you know, just, you know, know that we're the first team to call other teams to be calling. And, and I thought it was going to say it's, and, and in the meantime, I'm going to stack rejection letters from all the other GMs and head coaches and whatnot around the league. And, 
And every day on my lunch break at work, I'd go check the mailbox and there'd be another rejection letter in there. And, you know, and I thought the Saints were it. Well, well, you know, two weeks went by and the Saints called back and, and all my buddies ran to the phone with me. I called them back and they said, hey, um, the, the scouting director of the Saints said, you know, one of our, you know, college, uh, senior college scouts disagreed with one of some of your reports. And uh, we're going to be unable to move ahead with any kind of job offer. We're really sorry, but, uh, you know, we appreciate your interest. I mean, I, I was just crushed. I mean, you know, I thought I'm, I'm this close, right? It's kind of like when they bring out the measuring sticks in the NFL games and they put the sticks there and I was been just that, that, just missed it by that much. I'm like, no, yeah, there you go. There you go, Brian. There you go. Throw the challenge play. Wait a second. This can't be happening to me. Right. And, and, uh, so, but, but it, it was happening. And, and my buddy again at the bank, Michael, I keep coming back to the guy who told me, no, I should call the publishers around, around town. He said, you know, I think another coach with as much, as much passion, if not more passion, uh, you know, that, that, you know, my dick is going to, um, is going to call you. I'm like, oh, sure. Right. You know, I'm like, you're just trying to make me feel better. Well, sure enough, a couple of days later, uh, I get a, a, a page uh, on my, my, my pager. It says, uh, please call Scott Pioli at the New York Jets, uh, you know, and it gave his number, uh, 516-560-8280. I remember it to this day. And uh, I, I dialed the phone and, and uh, you know, and, and I, I didn't even know how to pronounce his name. So I asked, I asked the receptionist, I said, do you have a Scott, somebody that works in scouting? They're like, yeah, Pioli. And I said, oh, that's it. Okay. So then I said, thank you. And I hung up and I pretended to call back 10 minutes later. I said, Scott Pioli's office, please. <laughs> and the phone started to ring you know this is great right so 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 you know and he comes on the phone and says hey listen dan you know um you know bill got a hold of your book uh being parcells uh he really likes your he likes what you've done here uh you know we have a position open in, in the pro personnel it's an assistant uh, pro personnel assistant job it's a real you know it's an entry level it's a foot in the door type of job uh would you be interested i'm like interested yes <laughs> i said i'd be more than interested in and he says, okay. He says, well, we're going back to our personality profile test. Fill that out. We'll be in contact. So I, I filled out the test because they're, they're really into like people's personalities and, and who they are as a person, all that. So I filled it out and, and I started to think to myself, I don't even have a suit for the interview. I'm starting to think this way now because I started becoming more real by the minute. So I'm out at the Mall of America about 5.30 on a Sunday, about a half hour before the mall closes. The gates are half down on the stores. And uh, all of a sudden, my pager goes off. It says, please call Scott Pioli. You know the number again. And I call him. He says, okay, listen, Dan, the bill's ready to take the next step with you. When, when's as soon as you can be out here to talk with us? And I said, well, I can, you know, I probably, because I'm thinking I don't have a suit, right? I'm thinking, well, I probably can be out there by a week from tomorrow. Uh, he goes, no, Bill doesn't want to wait that long. And I said, well, I can get tomorrow off. And he goes, great. I'll have an e-ticket waiting for you at the Minneapolis airport. We'll have dinner tomorrow night. Can't wait to meet you. Thanks. Bye. So then you found your Washington coaching jacket and said, I'll wear that into the... <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, 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 I knew better than that at that stage. I'm a very slow learner, but I knew better than that at that stage. So so very good one, though, Mark. But, but, but I, I raced into a men's clothing store and, and I said, hey, listen, guys, here's what I'm trying to do. And they said, hey, we love football. Let us help you. They got me all decked out with the suit. I walked into the bank the next day. Everybody knew something was up. And, uh, you know, I flew up to New York for, for a, an amazing marathon two-day interview with the who's who of football at that time. And uh, the first thing I saw, I mean, I, I landed at LaGuardia Airport. They ushered me out to the, you know, the, the facility. You know, the big sign that said no visitors allowed on the gates. Oh, the gates open. You know, I saw the big fluorescent goalpost. I'm like, wow, I'm in the NFL. You know, all these, all these souped-up rides are in the parking lot. 
Ferraris and SUVs with, you know, spinning rims and sound systems, all that stuff. And, and all of a sudden I walk in the front door and the very first thing I see on the front cover of my book, even on, on whatever it takes, is, is the Super Bowl trophy. That's the first thing I saw when I walked in the door uh, when the Jets won Super Bowl three. And uh, so I walk, you know, they usher me up the stairs and they walk me down the hallway. And this is the most, this is one of the funniest parts of the interview. You guys want to hear a funny part of the interview? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so this, this is funny, right? So in my draft book, right? In my draft book that year, um, the, the Jets drafted and the, they didn't have a first round pick because they had to give that to New England for Parcells. Uh, so they had a high second round pick and they drafted a kid, a defensive end out of Washington State named Dorian Booth. Now, most people probably don't remember the name because he hardly ever saw the field. But, but here's the thing about Dorian, right? So, so this is a Jets top draft pick. And the first person I have to interview with is Dick Haley, uh, who is our, our um, uh, scouting director uh, overall and, in the building. And uh, he was the architect of the Pittsburgh Steelers dynasty in the 1970s. This is a guy who drafted Terry, you know, Bradshaw, Mean Joe Green, uh, uh, Jack Lambert, uh, Stallworth, uh, all the guys, you know, Rocky Blyer, he brought all those guys and on, on the, on the, the uh, Steelers. So, so I walk into the, Mr. Haley's office and he's known as Mr. Haley, whether you're a first year scout or you're a GM, he just, he just commands that kind of respect. And so I walk in, he's got the big Super Bowl rock in his hand with, with the Steelers. He says, hey, welcome to the, you know, welcome to the Jets, Dan, have a seat. So I sit down and of course it's a little round table and my book, my 1998 NFL draft report is laying on the table, open to the page Dorian Booz's reports on. Now the Jets had used him for their top draft pick for that year. I had him rated in my book as an undraftable reject. <laughs> so this is where the plot thickens, right? There's no, it's, there's no denying this at this point, right? I'm sitting there, my work is staring me in the face. Yeah. Here's Dick Haley, the guy that built the Steelers dynasty, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at my book, and he's looking at me, and so he says, hey, come on in, let's, let's sit down in the war room. So he takes me into the Jets drafting room, which is known as the war room, and he says, you know, he looks at the wall with all the names on the teams and everything. He says, you know, who do you think did well? I said, well, I think, you know, the Bengals, the Rams did nice. He goes, what do you think about our draft? And I'm just like, please don't let him ask about Dorian. And he just keeps talking, and, and he's, you know, we, we mentioned a couple of players. He goes, what do you think about Dorian Booze? And he sits back, he's got this salt and pepper hair, he's got these reading glasses on the bridge of his nose. He's been in the NFL for 40 years, right? And he's, he sits back in his chair and he's kind of comfortably, he says, what do you think about, what are your thoughts about Dorian? I said, well, Mr. Haley, with all due respect, I said, I thought that he was very soft. I, I thought he didn't play with any heart. I thought he didn't really fight off blocks that well. I thought he got tangled up way too easily. Um, I like his size, but that's all I really liked about him. I said, I just don't think he has what it takes in the NFL to play defensive end. And he just sat there and this guy nodded. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And, uh, and thankfully, he was pretty comfortable with his own skin at this point, you know, of his career after being in the NFL, winning four Super Bowls with the Steelers. And he's like, well, uh, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. And he started explaining to me how Dorian Booze had the same size hands as Mean Joe Green. and yeah. Stuff. You know, and I was like, okay, cool. So then well, I... Can, so I, was, can I stop you on there? Because there's something I'm really fascinated. And look, I mean, again, you're going to talk about who's who. Dick Haley's father of Todd Haley, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually yeah still involved in the yeah. NFL today uh, uh, as offensive a coordinator with the Steelers, with the cards all around the place. But... Um, when I think of scouting reports, and there's been a lot of folks on this, like quarterback hand size, about um, arm length, about combine results, about three-cone measurement and everything, they, they, you know, even 
some of the traditional scouting about whether it was in a two technique or a three technique and how it seems almost very scientific but actually what you just said there about Dorian is like you felt he played you know he was soft he didn't play hard they're almost like emotive qualities in terms of aspects I yeah alluded to Brady about no one being able to measure his heart and things like that how practically just give us a little insight on that how practically do you do scouting or do have you seen scouting being done trying to take account of not only the physical measurable attributes but some of those underlying character issues i mean you know if you could go back in time and tell the patriots in 2011 don't take some individual tight end in the fourth round that that might have helped for example um some of our considerations but just would you give us a bit of insight into that because i think that's you know a bit behind the scenes that'd be really interesting Absolutely, Mark. Um, we we call it in the scouting world we call it intangibles, um, and, and these are these are really the uh, the, the unseen things, uh, the unseen realm. Uh, these are things that you know. You say a guy plays with a lot of heart. Well, you know nobody can really see that. Um, you know the guy, you know has a lot of passion. Uh, you know these are you know is he is he you know it was funny because once I got hired the Jets, okay, just to kind of you know, and I've I've learned actually how Bill Belichick built his dynasty from Lionel Vitell, who was his scout for the first three Super Bowls, is solely almost on intangibles. I mean, they're looking at the measurables that you're talking about, Mark, but, but they're looking at the, 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 the hidden things, the invisible things. And this is something that, you know, that I really learned a lot about as a kid growing up, uh, studying and learning from Bobby Beathard, who I consider the best general manager in NFL history. Um, and the reason why is he, he, you know, put together those three Super Bowl teams with three different quarterbacks with Joe Gibbs. He found Joe Gibbs. Don't even know who, nobody even knew who Joe Gibbs was mm-hmm. uh, at the time uh, when, when Bobby found him. He only had two first-round draft picks his entire time as GM of the Redskins. He built the entire, you know, Super Bowl teams based on, you know, low-round draft choices, free agents, USFL cast-offs, you name it. So, so I, I learned a lot about, you know, the importance of chemistry and, and looking at intangibles like we're talking about here, right, Mark and Brian and our listeners, it's, it's the intangibles. And, and so I, once I ended up getting hired the Jets, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of interactions with Parcells and Belichick, but one day Parcells sat down with me. I was, I was the only person in the lunchroom and Parcells came and got himself some lunch and sat down at my table. It was just him and me in the lunchroom. And he looked at me and he says, Dan, if there's one thing you do here, learn the critical factors of scouting. And he just stared at me. And then he got up and walked away with his lunch. And, and I, I did, unfortunately, I, I didn't even know what that even meant. It was like, it was like someone coming up to me and speaking a foreign language and, and, and it sounded really important, but I didn't really understand it. Right. And so, you know, until after I got all the NFL, but I learned from Lionel again, who scouted, you know, as my mentor scouted with the Patriots, what, what the critical factors are. These are things like, you know, dependability, coachability, uh, is the game important to him or how important is the game to him? Uh, you know, those are three of them, you know, so, so you're looking at things that are, are, and then what, you know, what you do is, is, is answer those questions because it's not just, you see, when I got into scouting, I thought it was just about finding the best players. Well, it's really not just about finding the best players. It's finding, first of all, it's finding the guys with the right intangibles, critical factors, and a guy who can play. And it's really, you know, not only about that, but it's who fits your system. That's another big piece that I learned too during my time at the, at the Jets. So, so there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. The stuff with the cone drills and the running and all that stuff, all that stuff is way overblown in my mind. 
it's it's you know nobody runs a 40-yard dash uh, without pads on the NFL to begin with, so I don't even know why that's even even in existence. But you know, so, so it's you know, but 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 really, what you're looking for is you're looking at the intangibles. In my mind, as a scout, I was actually going to ask you that, Daniel, how you feel about the combine because it's blown up so much, in particular the last five or six years. You know, but the reality is these guys are in shorts doing the drills. The quarterbacks are out there thrown to wide receivers running routes, but it's, it's no comparison to a game. You know, so I think you find some of the general managers are more focused on watching the coverage from the previous season rather than what happens in Indianapolis during the combine. Uh, absolutely, Brian. Uh, the, the combine is nothing more than the biggest frat party in the world every year, every spring. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, Jerry Glanville, the old coach of the Atlanta Falcons, called the Underwear Olympics. And you know, I, I, any day in the week, if I had a choice between going to workouts and, and going to the combine, now I, I've been to six scouting combines, but, but if I had a choice between going to the scouting combine and and watching players on tape. I'd much rather watch players on tape because that's the tape never lies. And Tony Rosano said that in his book, in the 49ers book, he said the film never lies. And, and so many of these guys, they, they get, you know, they, they, they're, they're workout warriors. That's what we call them in the NFL. They, they, they can bench press 225, do, do 40 reps of 225. They can jump out of the gym. They can, they can spin on their head. They can do all these incredible things athletically. But when you turn on the tape, it doesn't translate. And I think a lot of mistakes are made in the draft from, you know, guys who get away from watching the, the, the tape and get and fall in love with the workouts or fall in love with the interviews or fall in love with another aspect of it, the tape. It's all about the tape. It always has been and always will be. There are no shortcuts. It's about the tape, not the workouts in my mind. Yeah, I just noticed in the, the most recent convoy, some players are falling into the second round. Because they didn't, they didn't have a good combine. They didn't run. The expectation is they would run a faster time. They just didn't deliver on that, which is ridiculous. I mean, that particular player was playing for Alabama last year in the Big 12. You know, if, he, if he's good enough to be playing for Alabama in the Big 12, you know, he's, I'm not saying he's a short thing going into the NFL, but the law of averages is he's going to be, you know, he's going to deliver, give or take, within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of mistakes have been made at the NFL scouting combine. There's no question about that. And it's really the scouting combine is, is another big aspect of it is it's a job fair. I mean, that's, that's what it is. You, you get, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands, as they used to call it when I was there. And, uh, you know, all these guys get together and they, they glad hand each other and they talk about their next job and who's going to go where and what's going to happen. So, and, and like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a big frat party is, is what it turns out to be. And, and then, oh, by the way, the players are working out too. And, and I mean, there's some, there's some validity to some of the stuff, but uh, you get a chance. I think the interviews are probably the most important part of the process at the combine where you can sit down and really get inside the guy's head. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the workouts, I mean, I, I sat in the workouts next to Al Davis and Eric Dickerson once up in the stands watching the guys work out. It was, it was a, it's a cool experience. There's no question. Um, anybody who ran a 425, 426 out there is just making a list of draft him, draft him, draft him. So it was, uh, it's, an, it's an easy drafting experience without Davis, probably. Just, just draft him, baby. Just draft, baby. He's like, <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually going to say, you're talking about some busts. Uh, inevitably, people not looking at the tape. I mean, Vernon Goldston, um, you know, Ryan Leaf. Mitch Trubitsky and stuff. There's always been flaws. And again, I just said that for Noel's benefit, Brian. You'll appreciate that. Um, but there's always been some flaws and people trying to talk themselves around in draft picks. I, I want to get back to your story, but 
by the end, now let's loop back because I'm really fascinated on the most recent draft. I'm sure it's still in your blood. You're still analyzing every draft. Like who, you know, you've seen in this latest draft that may or may not kind of pan out the way the teams think. Like who's talking themselves into something you're seeing? Well, maybe there's a bit of a flaw there because um, I'd love to get your opinion on that. But looping back to your, your story and your journey, you're at the Jets you're working there amongst others and Pioli's there. And as you say, there's a lot, I mean, like almost the brain trust, Mangini's there, um, Belichick and Parcel, two Hall of Fame coaches. I mean, yeah, you could work with Dick Kerr, who's a Hall of Fame tight end, but coaching and drafting, I mean, Ricky Williams will tell you he's not exactly, uh, he's got some interesting ideas in what you do with a draft, to say the least. But Belichick and Parcells working in tandem, as Brian's alluded to, the two bills, that great ESPN documentary and reflecting on that time. I mean, you were there for like a rare, rare occurrence as well because there was a Jets playoff appearance during your time there even as well. And, and they even made the AFC Championship game. So uh, tell us a little bit about that experience as well. You know, with a, a winning team, like, I mean, Jesus, the Jets don't even know what that sounds like. But a winning team, 12-4, and four, gets the postseason. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because uh, you know, you you Mark being a Patriots fan, and, and Brian, we were talking offline a little bit about this being a Giants fan, and me being with the Jets, uh, it, it's kind of like a mixture of like everything that encompassed their 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 careers, and, and for the most part, I mean, I know Bill Belichick's with Cleveland as well, and Parcells has had a couple other stops as well since since his time there. But I mean. Uh, you know, of course, Parcells and Bilicek back in the 80s, uh, you know, with, with the Giants. And, of course, uh, you know, they're together in the Patriots and then, you know, the Jets. And, and then Bill leaves and, and uh, goes on to uh, work with the Patriots. And Scott Pioli, my boss, went with him and became NFL executive of the decade. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting, uh, you know, experience, uh, to say the least. They, they were known around the Jets building as Big Bill and Little Bill. Uh, that's what they referred to him as. They said, uh, hey, uh, you know, who do you need to talk to? Uh, that's Little Bill. Okay, that's Bill Check, right? So, so <laughs> but uh, those guys were great to me. Uh, they were absolutely great to me. I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with them because, again, I was an entry-level guy. Uh, my job was to get the chicken wings and keep my mouth shut for the most part. Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> game planning night, and we had Charlie Weiss on staff too, and he loved the atomic sauce with the uh, the wings. And uh, we had uh, Romeo Cornell on the staff too. It was a star-studded yeah. staff. And uh, Mike Tannenbaum was there during that time too, as the contact negotiator. Uh, so it's really just incredible. Uh, Brian Gain was a young scout at the time too. He went on to become GM of the, of the uh, Houston Texans. I was on staff with Trent Baalke as well, with it was the 49ers GM for a while, and so. It was incredible being around that building, um, you know, just kind of the feel to it was uh, Parcells had a, had a saying, act like you've been there before. And, and you really wouldn't know if, if the Jets were 0-16 or if we were one game away from winning at all based on the atmosphere and the environment because it was a veteran group there. Uh, and the only thing that was good enough for this group was winning a Super Bowl. I'll, I'll never forget when I went down to NFL Europe uh, in Orlando uh, with, with Scott Pioli and JoJo Wooden, who's now the uh, director out with the uh, Chargers. Um, and, uh, you know, we're riding along in a car and all of a sudden, I'm, you know, it's right after we lost the championship game and all that. It's the next season. And, and I remember saying, uh, you know, making a casual comment from the back seat. Pioli was in the passenger seat and JoJo was sitting next to me. Uh, Jojo Wooden and, and all of a sudden I make a comment just it was just kind of quiet in the car I said you know well you know last game it was I mean last season sure was great we were just you know one game away from the Super Bowl and the whole car went dead silent and and Pioli turned around you know from his passenger seat <laughs> he looked at me this is my boss right he looks at me he goes I don't ever want to hear you say that again he goes one game away isn't good enough I was like 
<laughs> just dead silent, yeah. right? So, yeah. so it was it was an atmosphere where where the expectation was Super Bowl victory or bust. It was a very veteran group, a veteran group of coaches who had been there with the Giants and won those Super Bowls before. Um, you know, so so you know there were no strangers' success. I remember after um, it was interesting that that 1998 season, I'd gone through testicular cancer myself that year. Uh, my first season in the league, and uh, you know, we were going to you know play the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, in the playoffs, and I always kind of wondered, you know, you know, what it would be like to be part of a, a playoff team, and and I got a chance to ride in the team bus with the police escort to the Meadowlands, uh, which was awesome, awesome experience, and uh, you know, guys sat down in the stadium and watched the game, and you know, Jets win, and and uh, you know, the confetti's coming down in the Meadowlands, you know, big, you know, on the scoreboards flashing up next AFC Championship game. And, uh, you know, so it, it was an incredible experience. And, and all of a sudden this, this man, um, you know, he turns around. Let me see if I can find the uh, picture really quickly here. Uh, here's, here's a picture of my book, whatever it takes, of, of the uh, scoreboard that day. You can see that AFC championship game, Jets versus Denver, right? And uh, take that picture. And all of a sudden there's a man sitting in front of me. Uh, there's, what, 70, 68, 69,000 people in the stadium. And this man sitting in front of me, he turns around, he goes, this is after the Jets beat, you know, Jacksonville divisional playoff game. He turns around to me and says, uh, that sure was a great game, huh? And I said, oh, yeah. I said, it was awesome. And uh, he reaches up his hand there and introduces himself. He goes, uh, I said, I'm Dan Kelly. He said, I'm Wayne Corbett Sr. <laughs> <laughs> out of, out of 68,000 people, the guy whose story inspired me eight months That's amazing. is sitting right in front of me. What are the odds of that, right? I sitting right in front of me at the stadium at the Meadowlands. And I'll never forget after the game, I had a chance. I met JFK Jr. that day, too. He walked right past me and right before his plane. You know, it's like a four. You guys seen Forrest Gump, the movie Forrest Gump? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like it's my Forrest Gump moments. It's like, you know, I, I, I saw I met JFK Jr. right before that nice young man's plane disappeared. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it was it was crazy. And right after the game, they, they said the press conference, you know, they asked Parcells, they said, well, are you going to enjoy this one for a little while, Bill? And, and Bill said, he goes, listen, fellas, he goes, I'm not in the enjoyment business. You know, so, so that was the atmosphere in the building. And, and it was my biggest, my biggest accomplishment at the New York Jets was right before the AFC championship game against the Denver Broncos. And just like, you know, how these ideas start coming to my mind, you know, like I described back when I did my draft book when I was 24, when I was working at the bank these ideas start coming to my mind again when I'm sitting there the week of the AFC championship game, that there has to be some kind of rhythm, some kind of pattern, some kind of tendency to what Mike Shanahan did, because he came from the Bill Wallace tree. If you guys remember, uh, you know, of course, you know, scripting the first 15 plays of the game. Right. So, so, so he, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. So I said, there's gotta be a pattern to the first 15 plays. I'm going to break it. Right. I'm going to try to at least. So I, I got an Excel spreadsheet put together and I went ahead and I got all the Denver Broncos game film down and I started charting their first 15 plays of each game throughout the entire season. This took me about 12 hours until about four or five in the morning. I'm sitting there, I'm working all night on this, charting all these plays. It's very monotonous and I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the tapes and I start like noticing that here's the first 15 plays of the first regular season game. And then in game number two, uh, Mike Shanahan started with, uh, and of course this is Kyle Shanahan's dad, uh, with the 49ers uh, now and and in game number two he started with play number two on the list and worked it way back to the top in game number three he started with play number three on the list and worked it back to the top playing at game number four play number so four worked it back. his code 
Absolutely. And so that went on to the eighth game. They worked his way back up the reverse of the staircase to the end of the season. The first playoff game, the wildcard game, matched the first regular season game. The divisional game matched the second game of the season. So I write in Eric Mangini's office, and he was our defensive backs coach, and I said exactly that, Mark. I said, I- I've done it. I- I've broken Shanahan's code. And-, and I know the first 15 plays, you know, Coach Mangini. And-, and he says, how do you know that? I said, well, here, I just, you know, I just shared with you guys. And uh, it turns out I was right. I cracked the code, and I predicted the first 15 plays of the game before the game ever happened. That was my biggest accomplishment during my time with the Jets. I, I love that story. I love that that idea and everything. And, I mean, you know, you then put that in the hands of Mangini, as you say, Cronell, Belichick, Parcells. Yep. I mean, that's uh, cool. They, they still didn't win the game, unfortunately, Dan. I mean, they did do a Jets piece at the end. But, you know, that that is that is beautiful. Um, and I've also found with your Forrest Gump analogy there, we've also figured out why you're down in Key West in Florida now. It's obviously shrimp-related uh, enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. I got, I got 12 shrimping boats. Absolutely. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> They're all named Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I used to have um, a dog called Bubba, too. That's the ironic part, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, look, I, I do – I mean, you kind of very briefly mentioned it there, but, I mean, like, that's also the fascinating thing. And, you know, as you alluded to, I mean, Daniel's written a book, Whatever It Takes, about your whole journey – through all of these matters, through the whole uh, journey of your life and all the things you've overcome. But you alluded right. to one thing that you overcame, which is, you know, not to be um, made light of or, or kind of very briefly passed over, but in the middle of the Jets, in the middle of finally realizing your professional destiny, if you like, and your opportunity there, you get diagnosed with testicular cancer. You get told by the doctors, this is extremely serious. You're going to miss the whole year. Just it's not going to happen. And if I recall correctly, you're back at your desk, back at work within a month. Was that about right? That's right, Mark. Yeah, I was not. I was not one of those guys who was going to opt out of my rookie season. <laughs> I, I, uh, I said, you know what? I said, uh, this is my dream, and and it was serious. It was serious, and and I like to touch on. I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because testicular cancer. I mean, we hear a lot about breast cancer. We hear a lot about prostate cancer, right? Uh, but we don't hear a lot about testicular cancer. And, and for our listeners out there are listening between ages of 17 and 24, testicular cancer is the number one type of cancer young men can get. And um, I didn't know a thing about testicular cancer. Um, and uh, matter of fact, one, of, one, one guy I knew in high school was a couple years older than me, uh, actually died of testicular cancer because he was embarrassed and uh, thought he had an STD or something, and uh, and uh, he ended up uh, not going to the doctor until it was too late. And so, uh, you know, so my first month in the job at the Jets, uh, I started noticing some very sizable swelling to keep the show family friendly, uh, you know, down in that region. And um, it was pretty noticeable. And I went to the doctor, and he, you know, diagnosed me in five minutes. He said, you have testicular cancer. And my, my life flashed in front of my eyes because here I am, right? They picture this, right? It's like scoring the game-winning touchdown. And all of a sudden, there's like, there's a flag on the play. Wait, wait, wait. You know, there's a game-winning touchdown on the Super Bowl. Wait, there's a, you know, holding, holding number 74 four. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like I, I'm finally at my dream, and, and I'm finally there, and, and I get a diagnosis of the cancer, and my life literally flashed in front of my eyes. Like they, they say, I'm like, oh, my gosh, because anytime I'd heard about cancer, I always heard, you know, I always associate with people dying. Yeah. You know, so I went through two major surgeries and it was incredible. And I, I want to touch on this really quickly. I'm glad you brought this up, Mark, because, you know, I always wondered, you know, why the Jets? You know, I mean, we talk about the connection between Corbett's story and all of a sudden I'm sitting there with his dad at the stadium eight months later. But why the Jets? Why not the Saints? Why not the 49ers? Why not the Patriots? Why not the Giants? You know, why, why the Jets? And, and, and in my first month in the job, 
It turns out that New York is home with the best hospital in the world for testicular cancer in Manhattan, New York, called Memorial Sloan Kettering. Have you guys ever seen the movie Brian's Song? Yep, yep. Yep, yep. So, so they, 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 they have that, that movie is, takes place at Sloan Kettering. The doctor who, the, the, the team doctor at the Jets knows Dr. George Basel at Sloan Kettering. He's a famous world surgeon on testicular cancer. He's written two books on it. And because I'm with the Jets, I have the best insurance so I can get in. And the team doctor calls and there's a five-year waiting list to get in to be seen. And because I'm with the Jets, they, they, they you know, bring me right in to be, be, you know, be taken in. I went through two major surgeries. I had the testicle removed, the first surgery. The second surgery I had, I was on the table for eight hours. Um, and uh, it had uh, like 75 staples. I had a 12-inch incision from my sternum all the way down. And uh, I was not going to be denied, Mark, to your point. I was not going to be denied. Yeah. You know, I was going to be back. And they, they told me I missed the season. I'm like, there's no way I'm missing the season. This is my dream. I mean, I worked this hard to get here. I, I'm not, I'm, you know, it's going to take more than cancer to sack me to keep me out of the season. Love it. Uh, it's an inspiration, Daniel, and no, fair play. Um, obviously, that's an amazing um, commitment to everything. I mean, I mean, but the commitment, kind of understandable when you think about your whole journey along the way and what you were doing and what you were focused on to, to get to that stage. Um, look, I'm very conscious of just a, a little bit of time. I think I feel like we could talk uh, uh, an awful lot. I'm sure Brian would just love to know the, the, the routes to in and out of the Meadowlands and every single tidbit of every conversation you ever have with Parcells. I'd probably do the same to you about Belichick. Um, <laughs> I feel like our listeners are already going to be dialing Scott Pioli's old number to see if it still works. In the <laughs> as well. That, that would be interesting to see. I thought about that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, mm, that might be interesting. But look, um, you know, just again, bring us up today, bring it back to the football necessarily. Like I say, you're, you know, you're still, you're still scouting, you're still, you know, doing your analysis, you still kind of want to get back in with the NFL at some point and everything. And, you know, we've, we've obviously had a few interesting drafts in the last while, and it feels like teams are making less silly mistakes, especially in the first round, there's still value in different rounds, but I'm interested in your take as a well, as a professional scout and your viewpoint on what we've just seen in the last draft. Is there anything in it that stood out to you as, shall we say, surprising or particularly good move? It doesn't have to be first round. Just any particular observations that you think our listeners should look out for uh, for fancy purposes or otherwise um, where you feel somebody could be a great move or potentially a, a bust in the making? We're looking for the next Dorian to be highlighted here. Just no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a crazy, you know, it's crazy you talk about this, Mark, because last year I didn't get a whole lot of chance to analyze the college draft last year because, like you mentioned, I'm still pursuing the NFL, right? And so last, last uh, you know, even last, uh, what was it, September, um, my wife, Samantha, had been encouraging me for quite a while to send up my book, whatever it takes, to different teams and stuff. And I wasn't too excited about doing it. You know, I, 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 it's, it's, believe me, I even deal with discouragement, you know, rejection letters all the time, whatnot. And, and what, the only thing harder to get in the NFL in the first place is get back in the second time. That's the only thing that's harder. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so you know, my, my wife, Samantha, was encouraging me. So I sent out this book to a few people. I sent out to uh, Dan Snyder and uh, to, to Gruden in Washington. And so, uh, you know, in, in January of, of 2019, I sent it out, right? And, and I didn't hear a word back. And so we're sitting there, um, you know, my wife loves re reality TV. And we're sitting there last September and, and uh, she's watching the show. I'm scrolling through my phone on Facebook and I'm in my boxers, you know, laying there Sunday morning. And 
and all of a sudden my phone goes off and it says 703-726-7000. There's another number our, our listeners will dial probably very quickly. And I uh, answer the phone and I said, I said, uh, uh, hello. I made the picture it's Sunday morning, right? I, I'm, I'm just laying there watching some TV with my wife. I said, hello. And, and the voice on the air phone says, he goes, is this Daniel? And I said, speaking, he goes, Bruce Allen, president of the Washington Redskins. How are you doing this morning? And I like jumped. I like looked at my phone. <laughs> I was like, what? Is this like somebody playing a prank on me? I'm like, no, I looked at the number. I put in speakerphone so my wife can hear it. He said, Daniel, Daniel, how are you? And I was like, I, I'm, I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. He goes, I, somehow, some way, your book came to my attention. And, and I, I read it cover to cover last night. I couldn't put it down. And I just had to call you. He goes, how is your health? And I mean, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. I said, uh, I, I'm 20 years removed from my cancer. And, you know, I'm doing well. And he goes, good. He goes, and I'm, I'm so sorry, he goes, about your daughter. Because in the book, I talk about after I had my cancer, I wasn't supposed to be able to have kids. I had a daughter named Bailey Hope, named after Champ Bailey. Uh, 1999 and at 15 months old she was diagnosed with neuroblastoma cancer stage four she went through six rounds of chemo during my time with the jets five surgeries and a bone marrow transplant before she went to be home to be with the lord jesus christ on christmas day of 2001 um and so um you know so he talked about that it's in the book about her battle with cancer and so he said i'm so sorry he goes i love her name but i'm so sorry for your loss of your daughter i said well thank you sir he goes well listen i love your perseverance I love your passion. He goes, I want to have you out here. I want to sit down with you and I want to find out what you think we should do as a team. I'm like, wow. I said, great. You know, it, it was a dream come true because I mean, this is something I've been dreaming of since I was eight years old, right? This is, this is 38 years later and I'm getting the call finally. And the crazy thing about it the 10 years it took me to write this book, whatever it takes, I had a thought in my mind that someday this book was going to lead to me getting an opportunity with my favorite team of the Redskins. And here it is. And, and Bruce Allen says, you know, I want you to come out here. And he goes, we got a big game coming up Monday night against the Bears. He said, but I'll call you back and we'll arrange it. So sure enough, after the Bears game, he calls back. And uh, the whole the whole interview, by the way, the whole the whole five, you know, the whole process I outlined, I write for Regulus Rag on, on the Internet. Uh, if you go to Regulus Rag, Daniel Keller, you can see the five part series about the uh, journey out to Washington. It, it was a dream weekend. Uh, he invited me out for the alumni weekend. He gave me the alumni package. Uh, he said, come on out. You can meet all your heroes from when you were a kid. Uh, you know, we can sit down, we can talk, you know. And so I flew out there in an amazing dream weekend from Arizona to Washington, D.C., landed at Reagan National Airport, uh, went, went to dinner that night. They rented out a whole restaurant, Rudy's Barbecue. And uh, I walked in and there's everybody. There's Doug Williams, Ricky Sanders, Gary Clark, Charlie Brown, uh, Joe Jacoby, Jeff Bostic, everybody's, you know, Monty Coleman, all the guys are all around, you know, talking. And Bruce Allen sees me and he goes, he goes, Daniel? And he just runs across the restaurant and throws his arms around me like I'm a long lost brother or something. He's like, oh, Daniel, it's so nice to you. It, it was just incredible. And so, so um, the next day I did like a charity event, uh, building a playground with some of the ex, you know, the old players. And uh, the crazy part about it is, 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 is that these are a lot of these same players I met when I was a kid. I talk about my book when I was 13 years old when Dexter Manley invited me to the team hotel when I was 13. Now I'm seeing these guys, you know, all these years later. And uh, Jay Schrader, my favorite quarterback of all time, seeing him talking to him and stuff. And uh, so after the playground build on Saturday, he texts me and says, uh, you know, meet me up in my hotel suite. Um, I want to sit down and talk with you this afternoon. So I went back to the hotel. Uh, found my way up to the 19th floor, which I couldn't hardly get up to the floor because they had to have a special card key, a pass to get up to the suite level. <laughs> and, uh, you know, knocked on the door and, uh, you know, he answers the door and uh, he says, come on in. I said, thank you, Mr. Allen. He goes, no, call me Bruce. 
And of course, this is the son of the legendary George Allen, uh, who's in the yeah. Hall of Fame. And uh, it turned out to be an amazing hour and a half interview process with him. And, uh, you know, he said, it's just, I, I, I love you. He goes, it's just a matter of, of you know, I love your passion. I love your perseverance. I love your eye for this. I love, I love everything about you. He goes, he goes it's, I just need to figure out where I'm going to put you. He goes, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, that because I was a Jets special team uh, scout my third season in the NFL, I wrote a 350-page book evaluating every kickoff, kickoff return, punt, punt return in the NFL, and developed a revolutionary system that can field the best special teams in the NFL, plus build the best depth in the league. And so, you know, he's looking at that book. He said, I, I love what you can do in coaching, perhaps. Maybe I can sit you down with our special teams coach and, and we can figure out something, you know, with the work with him. Or I'll sit you down with Doug Williams and Kyle Smith and we can figure out something in, in the, on the scouting side. He goes, but... And so he said, you know, it's just, just, I'll be in contact when the season ends. Just, just hang in there. And he walked me to the door and he, and he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, he said, he looked at me, he says, Daniel, I know one thing to be true. Great things are going to happen for someone who has as much passion as you do. And I walked out and, and, and it was just one of those moments. And of course, you know, I, I went back to Arizona after the, you know, I, I it was great. I had a chance to walk on the field with the, 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 yeah. the, the, the team before the game. Um, and I had a Santa suite watching the 49ers Redskins game and I flew back to Arizona and my wife and I made the decision just like I did back in, when I was 24 to go for it. Let's push all the chips up. We took all of our savings. We took everything we had and we, we dedicated the next four months to me working on what's called advanced scouting reports every week on the Redskins upcoming opponents. So I worked like 70, 80, 90 hours a week sitting at the kitchen table writing advanced scouting reports on all the Redskins upcoming opponents. Each report was about 50 to 70 pages long. And I sent it to Bruce Allen Federal Express every, every, Monday, every Monday morning for like another 100 hours with, with overnight expenses and printing costs and everything. And because I wanted to audition for this job, I wanted to show him that I still have what it takes, whatever it takes, right? I still have what it takes to do this and I can handle that workload because when I'm around the NFL, I have the energy level at 46 years old. I have the energy level of someone who's, who's half my age. So I, I can do this. I can put in 90 hours a week. I can help build a championship team. And so I wanted to convey that to, to Mr. Allen. And, uh, you know, so I'm all set. My wife's looking for, you know, places for us to stay in Virginia. She's interviewing for jobs on over Skype, all this stuff. And all of a sudden we wake up, of course, it's Black Monday. And, um, you know, she goes, she, she turns, she looks at the phone. She goes, oh, my God. I, I literally thought somebody died, like one of our family members died or something. She hands me the phone, and it's a statement from Dan Snyder releasing Bruce Allen. I was crushed, just like the Saints thing. I was absolutely crushed. So to get back to your point, Mark, uh, you know, about the college draft and everything, because I was so submersed spending, you know, 90 hours a week doing those advanced yeah. reports. You know, I, I didn't have, there's not enough hours a day because people would ask me, they're like, well, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? I'm like, you got some more hours on your clock you can give me? <laughs> you okay. know? Don't, don't worry about that, Daniel. I think that was, a, that was, in fairness, just the experience and the story you're telling is far better. And it struck me when you were telling the story at the start about being eight years old and watching the Redskins go for it in fourth and one. You know, the Redskins coach now, or sorry, Washington. Jesus, Brian, I'm doing it already. Um, the Washington coach now is Ron Riviera, Riverboat Ron, who likes going in for a fourth and short, especially when he had Cam Newton in Carolina. So maybe, you know, the universe is going to come around and it's all going to sync up. And on fourth and one, uh, it's going to come around for you again, Daniel. Look, I just wanted to, to okay. wrap things up a little bit. Daniel, where, just for the benefit of the listeners, where can they find your book? Um, Absolutely, Mark. Uh, my book website is, um, uh, you can find out some more about my background at whateverittakesbook.com. Make sure you put the book in there, whateverittakesbook.com. 
And my book is available in 11 different countries. It's on uh, Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com. You can find it anywhere books are sold online. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all over the place. Excellent. Well, look, thank you, Daniel, uh, author of whatever it takes. Uh, thank you very much for joining you. We may get you back on during the season just to share your thoughts as the season unfolds, uh, how things are developing, whether for, for Washington, for the Jets, or for uh, even the Minnesota Vikings at some point, um, uh, and get your thoughts and viewings on it. Thank you so much for joining us from Key West today. Um, Brian, anything else you want to say on wrapping up? No, no, just it was a pleasure to have Daniel on. Um, it's great that someone in the States took time out to come on our podcast. Um, and hopefully, again, we'll see you during the season. It'd be great we could have you on again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate that. I would love to be on again. Uh, thank you to our listeners uh, over in Ireland. And uh, thank you, Mark, as well. And remember, listeners, uh, it, it's, it's uh, the word impossible. I always like to say it's just a word. Nothing's impossible. If I can do it, you can do it. Whatever your dream is, go for it. Carpe diem. Carpe diem, Daniel. Love it. Thank you very much. And out to everyone. We'll call in the night tonight and uh, talk to you all very soon. Until next time, it's goodbye from us.